Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hi, and welcome to episode 12 of the Tube to Table podcast, Tricks and Treats. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the lengths that people go to to trick their kids to eat and how they use treats to motivate their kids at the table. Heidi, how are you doing today? I am great. It is super hot here in Nashville, so I'm very glad for the air conditioning and the time inside. I'm sure. I'm sure. We are, I feel like there's a massive heat wave everywhere right now and we just got to get through this. <laughs> it's hard. I'm working uh-huh. with a kiddo right now and he keeps wanting to go outside Aww. and then he goes outside and he's too hot. We have to go back inside, <laughs> but he's so sad about being stuck in the house. I know. It looks so fun out there, but then it's roasting. Um, we're so glad to be back after a little bit of an unexpected break from podcast recording. We had some technical challenges. Heidi and I are awesome at weaning kids off their feeding tubes, but come to find out the technical stuff is not at the top of our skill set, is it, Heidi? <laughs> not, no. <laughs> but we're back. We're back and we've got things going and there shouldn't be um, a gap anymore. We've got some stuff figured out. So um, we just wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, something that comes up a lot, which is what happens both in therapy and in families um, when children are offered treats for eating or they're tricked into eating. And so um, we will talk a little bit about both sides of that coin and what happens in families and what we're all kind of probably socialized to do that may not be the best (laughs) in terms of feeding and then how that applies to our tube fed kids and then also behavior therapy which is kind of the more uh, institutionalized if you will way to get kids to eat through tricks and treats so Jenny when you first said that topic of tricks and treats it sounded to me like tricks of the trade Mm -hmm. and I think sometimes those tricks and treats both feel like like tricks of the trade or mom hacks or therapy hacks in a way to get things to go the way you want them to go. And they feel like you're doing the right thing. And one of the things we wanted to highlight today is it's a, is some of the, like you said, some of the um, long-term problems that result from using some of those. Yes. And in this case, tricks means like being tricked in a negative connotation. Like, yes, it may help you in the short term, help your kid taste something or get something in their mouth or eat it. But what it is, what like most tricks, they erode trust. And our overall goal, if we're trying to raise healthy and happy eaters, is that they trust food and their bodies and the people feeding them. And so if we're tricking them, <laughs> we're already right. off on the wrong foot. So let's spend a little time there with the tricks because I think um, every person that's ever been at a table with a kid has either done it or been tempted to do it. And so there's no judgment here <laughs> on this end. But what is we find really helpful is for people to just kind of know what can go wrong with it and what often it can lead to and then um, how that interferes with the weaning process. So kind of the most extreme version of tricking kids to eat would be distracting them and sneaking something in their mouth or um, getting them to sing a song and while their mouth is open, putting something in their mouth. Like, you know, those are pretty overt tricking (laughs) situations. And then the other, um, 
the other ones are, that are a little bit more subtle would be kind of negotiations. If you do this, then you can, ha if you put this bite in your mouth, then we can go outside. Or if you eat five bites, then we can be done. So you might be thinking, well, that's how we do it at my table, or that's how I did it growing up, because I think a lot of us were raised by people that had us clean our plates or that told us we had to have a certain number of bites before we had dessert and all of that stuff. And I'm just here to say that <laughs> we're all human beings here and it's okay if it's not perfect. But when we're looking at helping kids that already have challenged eating and already have a compromised relationship with food, it's really important that we do our absolute best to create a situation through what we call responsive feeding that creates trust and lifelong kind of self-regulation and abilities to relate to their bodies and food. So um, the, the, the home tricks we just talked a little bit about, the therapy, the therapy version of that, I think we all have seen. It's more of the treat stuff where a child takes a bite and gets a treat. And that treat might be a preferred food, though with a lot of our tube-fed kids, they're not eating, so it might not be a food. It might be Elmo. It might be a doll. It might be screen time. It might be just loud and frantic clapping and dancing and, and celebration. Or it might be a fidget toy or something that the child really wants that isn't they aren't often allowed to have. So in that type of more behavioral therapy, children are asked to do something that they don't want to do and they're not naturally inclined to do. And that dislike or kind of aversion of the thing is overrun or is overcome in that short-term situation by external reinforcement. So that's what makes it behavioral. Whether your therapist identifies as a behavioral therapist or whether you as a parent say, I'm using behavioral techniques. If your child's getting um, a reward for eating, whether it be words, things, shows or activities. It's behavioral in nature. It's giving external reinforcement for something that should be internally driven. And Heidi, I don't know about you, but just to let everybody off the hook here, I certainly was raised in a wonderful home, but my parents used some of those tricks. And I also was that therapist um, because that's really what people are trained to do across the mm -hmm. board in therapy. Is that uh, your experience too? Oh, yeah. I definitely, my family didn't do it quite as much, but my um, therapy for a long time did that. In fact, I knew one little girl that drove past the children. They live near our children's hospital, so um, they drove by a lot. And after she came to see me for a little while, she'd drive by every time and go, woohoo! Oh, right, because every time she took a bite, I went, woohoo! Like, I so think funny. she thought that was my name, was woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> um, because that's what we did when she took a bite. Right. And so what I think it would be, so let's, we're going to lump all of this together and call the woohoo and the Elmo and the screen time and five bites and you can get down. All of this, we're going to lump into, for, for ease purposes, we're going to talk about it today as behavioral strategies. Um, whether or not you call it that at home or not, it's just, that's what it is. You're using these external reinforcements to, to help a child do something that should be internally driven. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about how feeding should happen and then what gets complicated with kids on tubes. So the natural drives to eat for kids are, should be, and of course we know that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably can't see them right now, but they're there generally, or they can be rediscovered. Um, our hunger, enjoyment, pleasure, taste, all of the things that go into, into pleasure, um, and curiosity, 
and togetherness. So kids eat generally for those reasons when they have a positive relationship with food and they're able to kind of um, relate to or respond to their body's physiological needs. So what's wrong? I guess the, the, it, begs, it begs the question, what's wrong with, um, you know, doing it a different way? And the, what's wrong with it is if we are asking a child to do something for external reasons, it makes it hard for them to discover the internal ones. So we want our children to experience hunger, to understand what it is, and to respond to it. And most of our tube-fed kids can't. It's not, it's because, right now, <laughs> it's because they are being fed by tube. And so their nutritional needs aren't there. But then also most kids that have feeding tubes don't have an understanding or a trust of food and feeding either. And so um, even if you get them hungry, as many of you have exp expressed to us, um, it's not enough. Just hunger by itself is not enough. Um, so it's, it takes a while to kind of peel back the layers and get a child to feel comfortable and, um, tuned in enough to listen to their hunger cues and be able to feel so comfortable around food that they can enjoy the togetherness and be curious and enjoy pleasure with food. And so when we're offering external reasons, it deny for eating like rewards, it denies children the opportunity to listen to those messages that their body is sending them or could be sending, but maybe isn't having a chance because of all of this other noise that's at play. And then there's another big reason, which is more about the tricking part of it, why we don't um, want children to be tricked around food and be, um, you know, forced to eat, whether it, through a trick, you know, through sneaky means. And there, that reason is trust between the feeder and the child. And Heidi, I know you know some stuff, a, a lot more stuff about what happens to um, relationships and attachment when feeding, like when you're, when you're using kind of sneaky means or when the feeding situation is not respectful and trustful. There, there's a couple different things I could say about that. The first one is a personal story. Um, when it was years ago, I was at a restaurant that had um, an ice cream machine and I was standing there at the counter waiting to order. And this man came up and he was furious because apparently somebody had accidentally put mashed potato mix in the ice cream machine mm. because they looked the same when it was a powder. So he thought he was getting cold ice cream and he got cold mashed potatoes <laughs> and he was so angry it's been probably 20 years and I still remember it so clearly I remember what he was wearing and what he looked like he was so mad and betrayed and he was yelling at this attendant uh, or this you know person who worked at the fast food restaurant who I think a little bit was probably trying hard not to laugh because <laughs> it's a little funny when you're removed from it but he was never going to go back to that restaurant again Mm -hmm. Like that was his trust was so betrayed by what his mouth expectations were and what his brain expectations were and what, what he really got that I think that's what happens to our kids a lot of times yeah. is they're expecting one thing, you know, and if they have limited experience, maybe they think all orange things are going to taste the same. And if you sneak in there and add green beans and they thought they were getting carrots, which they like, and they got something that they didn't like, that's very betraying. If it, it if it can make a grown-up change their habits and go to a different restaurant, it can certainly make a young, fearful child less, um, less ready to trust you the next time 
around because it was not a good experience for them. So that's really just an emotional, personal thing that always comes to mind when I'm feeding kids is that they, we need to not betray their trust in that way. Um, but some of the clinical things, some of the things we know from research and evidence and all of that is um, once we start doing those things, like you said, Jenny, they can't listen to their body's messages anymore, but it also devalues the food that has to be rewarded. Mm-hmm. So it puts in play the mindset of if I have to be rewarded for eating my green beans by getting cookies or TV or all those other things, it must not be good enough to be valued on its own. Yeah, they're smart. They know if you're trying mm-hmm. to trick them that whatever the thing is, is work and negative. Because we really only try to coerce people to do stuff they don't want to do that's not positive. So you're just resending the message about something they already don't want to do. Right. That it can't be eaten by an, uh, in and of itself. It's not good enough. It yes. has to be paired with a prize. Well, and there's there's actually some robust data about that in so many arenas. It happens with food. It happens with schoolwork. It happens in the workplace. It happens with in so many situations that we know that once we start um, rewarding something, that the reward begins to um, downplay the benefit of of what we're uh, of the thing that's being rewarded. So that that's a that's a big undermining. Yeah. And just to like a quick clarification on the reward, there are rewards, but they're natural rewards. Mm-hmm. When the reward is the natural consequence of the action, I put it in my mouth, it tastes good, and I get to sit at the table with my friends while they're eating or my sister. That's different. We're talking yes. about artificial rewards. Like there are natural rewards or we wouldn't keep doing stuff. There has to be a reason to do stuff right. and or we wouldn't keep doing it. But yeah, absolutely. Th- those rewards do interfere with the activity that they're meant to target mm-hmm. eventually. If they don't in the short term, eventually they will. Or the other thing happens where the reward, the kid is smart <laughs> and the, they ask for more. So the reward mm-hmm. was good enough. You know, one minute of screen time was good enough. And then they, it wears off because they're, it's not new anymore and they want 10 minutes. And then that 10 minutes turns into 40 minutes. And then you're really chronically in negotiations <laughs> about whatever the reward was you chose. One of my old coworkers used to talk about that a lot. And she pointed out to parents that they weren't working for the same salary that they did when they were 16. You know, you, they did have to continue to make more and make more and make more in order for that reward to continue to benefit them. And so there is an escalating reward and the focus then shifts to the rewards and not to the action. Yeah. And I think that parents, was supposed to be taking place. Yeah. I think parents, uh, I know for myself with behavior, I don't do it around food just because I am so immersed in this world, but I know that, that the, I, that you get tempted in thinking, well, if I can get, just get him to do it these few times, then he'll get the hang that it's delicious and good. And then it'll, he'll learn it on his own. And what the research shows is that that's not the case. That, that it doesn't necessarily happen. And if it does, I guess um, there are costs, which we're going to get into in a minute. But I just thought of another one that is also um, referred to in the data quite frequently, which is that feeding a child is a very integral part of parental and child attachment and how um, that attachment gets formed And we know from all the research that attachment is a really big indicator of wellness later in life. So if a child has good attachment early on in life, they have a better shot at just about everything later on in life. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when this primary activity of parenting 
uh, of the parent-child relationship, when it's marked by tricking or a lack of trust or negativity or stress um, that is not just the normal stress because it's stressful to feed kids, but like unnecessary stress that isn't founded in trust, that that has a potential to affect attachment outside of mealtimes. And that's really troubling and, and was mm-hmm. honestly quite surprising for me to find in the data. But what we do to trick our kids to eat has the potential to have a negative impact on how they really and feel secure with us outside of the mealtime. So if we're mm-hmm. tricking them or not trusting them to eat or not respecting their boundaries and cues um, and we're doing it consistently in the mealtime, that seeps into their security and attachment with us in other times, which is it, the data is out there. That's just happening. And that's really heartbreaking because I know that most parents that result that resort to those techniques are doing it for the exact opposite reason. They just want to love and take care of and support their child. And so it's really important that we not just tell you to stop doing that, but that we also give you some strategies for what to do instead. So don't worry, we're not going to just (laughs) talk about the not what not to do's. So that kind of covers the majority of the bulk of the basic fundamental reasons why we wouldn't want to, um, you know, use behavioral strategies to help a child eat. But then the other piece that when you take it a step further and you look at the lifespan, we know that later in life, if children don't learn to listen to their bodies, they don't learn to relate to hunger, and they don't learn to trust food and understand it in a way that's productive, that it's correlated to scary outcomes later in life. You know, diabetes, drug abuse, feeding, um, eating disorders, excuse me, all sorts of other health problems. Um, and are most of these little kids that are fragile, are, you know, have, have had fragile starts or, or rough starts, hence the tube. So the last thing we want to do as loving parents and therapists is subject children to things that we know through data are linked to negative health outcomes. And so unfortunately, this conversation is happening. It's happening more now than it was five or 10 years ago. But the majority of children that have severe feeding challenges are very much subject to behavioral strategies, both at home and in the clinic. Well, and Jenny, as you're talking about that, I just keep thinking that for some reason, feeding has gotten a pass Mm -hmm. because it's important to life. But in no other arena of life are kids allowed to be held down and made to do something that doesn't feel comfortable to them. You know, in school, in so many different situations, it's coming to light that those kinds of strategies are harmful to kids and they're horrifying to everybody. But somehow it's gotten a pass in the world of feeding. And that's, that's, puzzling to me a little bit because it's such a personal thing. Yes. Yeah. And I think Heidi and I, because we've talked, we're like interested in the data because we want to make sure that there's evidence behind everything we do with kids because we want to know it works. They're our most precious, you know, commodities. They're, they're, they're everything. And so if we can't protect them, then we're not doing our jobs. And so that's why we always end up rooted in evidence and data. And unfortunately, what happens is the most well-meaning therapists are looking at data that's not longitudinal. Because I do think, I don't think I I can speak for myself as a therapist. I was trying to help kids. I wasn't trying to hurt kids. I don't think there's a Mm -hmm. therapist. I I don't know any therapists ever that are trying to hurt kids or impact their food relationship in a long, in a negative way. But the data that's being looked at is either no data, which is sad to say, 
because I do think that there's a lot of people that are just practicing what they've been shown or taught without questioning the source. So a lot of therapists are doing techniques that are kind of commonplace because that's what has happened before them without looking to see, hey, is there evidence to support that this helps a child become too free or become a healthy eater Mm -hmm. in the long term? Or they're looking at data that's not longitudinal. And what I mean by that is they're looking at short-term studies, and there are some short-term studies that show that behavioral strategies can help in the short term increase the amount of food a child puts in their mouth and eats. Unfortunately, those studies are not longitudinal. They don't follow the kid for very long periods of time, but there are decades of longitudinal studies on kids without tubes and that show very clearly what happens to a child that, ha- that show that it has a negative impact if we are intervening too much and not allowing them to experience food for internal reasons um, and, and those internal drives. And so I think, I, I don't get it either. I do think you're right. I think that there's a big pass. I'd like to think that people are just doing the best that they can and that um, people are just looking at data that's incomplete. And I'll be honest, I didn't know that there's literally decades. I mean, there's, there's data going back to the sixties about, about how tricking kids to eat or pressuring kids to eat, getting kids to eat because of a prize has a negative correlation with both their intake, how much they take in, but also their acceptance of those foods later on. One of the things that changed my opinion on that was when I stopped thinking of kids with feeding problems as a small pocket of kids and other kids and started realizing that kids with feeding problems or feeding tubes or any of those other things didn't have those problems instead of all of the other things around normal childhood, but they had those problems in addition to. Right. So that meant that all of the research and all of the data that applies to all kids also applies to kids with feeding problems and disabilities and feeding tubes and all of those things. Those things also apply with an additional complication. Right. It's right. not a replacement. It's so an addition. True. Yeah. And in all areas of rehab or early childhood development, I know because I, you know, I have worked in that arena for years and I know you have too, Heidi. We uh, assume competence and we are supposed to treat our children with the best practices that are guided by general populations. So most school systems, early intervention programs, rehab centers, you aren't going to pick you know about development and the way that it should happen based on decades of research, and that's how you do it. You might need different techniques to get you there, but you're not going to choose techniques that are known to compromise long-term performance. But for some reason, that's still happening in the feeding world. And I think it's because a lot of people didn't know what else to do. Yeah. You know, I remember as a therapist saying, this doesn't feel right, but nothing's working. I've done everything I know. I've done everything in my arsenal. And somebody's got to do something and I'm the only one who's in the position to do it. So I'm going to have to do something that someone showed me that worked. And when I get a little bit of feedback, I went with it because it had some short-term gain. Absolutely. You do what you think when you don't have any options, you're desperate and you want to help your kids. So you do what you can do. And then on top of that, there's so much in our culture. There's so much uh, misinformation about the right way to eat. I mean, if you watch just five commercials randomly on TV, inevitably there'll be something about treating yourself. There'll be some message about indulgence. We are all part of a culture that offers us very mixed and really quite misinformed messages about food. So I'll give you a small example of families 
And then I'll give you a big example of kind of like media <laughs> and what happens. So the small example would be the clean plate club, clearing your plate in order to play, or finishing your broccoli in order to get your dessert. You know, we are, and then offering treats, food treats as prizes. I don't think there's a person on the planet, <laughs> in, in America at least, that has not been to a function where children were rewarded with food. It's part of who we are. It's part of what's wrong with our food culture because it does kind of program us out of listening to our bodies. And um, it also backfires. And it's known to backfire in the literature that, that re- using food as a reward makes other food by comparison look worse like we were just talking about. And, and let me just insert in there a little bit is that realistically speaking, there's going to be a day when you're like, I, I, I just can't. We're going to I had a day. We're going to sit and watch the iPad. We're going to get through our dinner. We're all going to go to bed and we're going to start over again tomorrow. And that's all right. <laughs> like that is all right. Yeah, and it happens. It and, does. you know, if you use some things like that as a coping mechanism to get through your day as a one-off. It's okay. It, it has to happen to keep life moving along. Right. And I get that. Yeah, I do get it too. And, and we have, but I think if we're talking about like thinking about weaning, it's just important to start exploring where, where your family tendencies go in terms of food. And then, because when you have a fragile eater at the table, they're even more susceptible than maybe mm-hmm. your four-year-old who just <laughs> would rather be, you know, jumping around the living room than sitting at the table. So so the, there's this cu- this kind of more familial cultural aspect that happens where we all have, our, we're all subject to the, this noise around food and we've all eaten for treats and we've all been, most of us have had an experience where we've been, either intentionally and unintentionally tricked into eating something. And then the the more the broader cultural thing is that food, like Heidi and I know that there was a campaign by I hate to give them press, but I their their french fries are delicious <laughs> by Orida that had frozen french fry commercial on TV and what they were trying to it was about it's called potato pay and they were trying to trick kids into eating french fry or broccoli for a French fry. And the whole ad campaign that was on major network television was designed around if you eat one piece of broccoli, one piece of broccoli is worth a certain number of French fries and so on and so forth. They were trying to like monetize um, food in a way that is just really problematic because the message that it sends to the child is French fries are good, broccoli's bad, and we know from studies that children will eat less broccoli and more French fries. And, and when in fact the intention was the opposite. Maybe not of a ride, maybe they're smart. Maybe maybe they know it makes kids want more French fries and they're going to sell more French fries. But um, so there's all of this cultural stuff out there that interferes with our ability to do it. So the reason I highlight that is it's everywhere. So if you're doing it, most of you probably are. Most families probably have some element of this. It's all right. It doesn't mean that, you know, the feeding relationship is, you know, irreparably damaged and you're not going to be able to get it back. It's okay. We're all learning about this, you know. And I think that um, I think that we are going to be able to get there in, in a little bit. We'll, we'll be able to, we'll all be able to get past that and be able to kind of move through all of that cultural stuff with just a little bit of help and knowledge. And so I guess that's a good transition into what is possible and what you should do instead. Mm-hmm. And so, first of all, make small changes that feel doable for you, to Heidi's recent point. <laughs> you, you don't want to try to like do all of this all at once, especially if you don't know what else to do. So make small changes that feel doable. 
But in general, what you are going to want to do is you're never going to want to reward your child for eating. If you praise your child for eating something, you don't want to praise the amount or the fact that they put it in their mouth. You could praise something else around the food. So Heidi and I talk a little bit about you're not going to praise the outcome. You're going to praise the effort. Oh, I know you weren't sure about that. I see you did a great job. Goes a long way. Or you really stuck with it. You weren't sure, but you hung in there. Or I really love how you're sitting at the table. That's a different type of praise than what way to go. I saw you took five bites of broccoli. Because then if they take four bites of broccoli the next day, that praise is kind of, they, they might feel like they're less of a success. Um, and so praising the outcome versus, or the effort versus the outcome if you're going to praise at all and less praise is generally helpful because kids and we talk, know what's working. When kids do something hard, like really, really hard, we know that there is some, like if you don't acknowledge it at all, yeah. it can have the reverse outcome as well of minimizing it and making it not likely to happen again either. So there, it's a fine line and we realize that, but a lot of times I would say something like, I like broccoli too. Yeah. So then we both were together and this is a connection and, and a I bonding thing. You, you're yeah, by I saying, saw it. Yeah, we're eating broccoli together. Like by saying it, you're acknowledging that it's happening and you're right. enjoying it. That's really good advice. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's it, just try little small changes. It doesn't have to be big things all at once. But another strategy would be in therapies. This is a little bit more... Um, direct, you never want to hold, you never want anyone, you never want to do it. And you never want anyone holding your child's hand down, holding their head still, or prying their mouth open. Any one or combination of those things should never be happening around food. So if your child's therapist is holding their hands down or holding their jaw and prying their mouth open or squeezing a spoon into closed lips, it's a no-go. Uh, that the net message of that therapy is that food is worse than and than it already was. I would back that up even all the way back to infants. And I think of kids who participated in therapies where they were taking the nipple of the bottle and pushing their tongue down mm-hmm. because a lot of times that tongue was in place because they were protecting their airway, because they were looking for stabilization. Mm-hmm. That's a message in a lot of different ways. And we need to start really early on teaching kids to protect their bodies and that it's okay to protect yes. your body. We don't want to override their protection cues. Totally. And that kind of gets into another thing. Like if you're, if you need a therapist, cause some of the time when you get rid of some of this interfering behavioral strategy stuff, you're like, well, what are we going to do now? And if some of the, if, if allowing your child the time and space isn't going to work, which it's not usually if your child's being fully tube fed, but if you're stuck looking for a therapist that identifies as being able to perform responsive feeding or responsive therapy techniques, um, that therapist can still have all of the great skill trainings that you need in terms of the motor stuff and child development and sensory processing and all of that. But a therapist that identifies as uh, responsive feeding, uh, informed and responsive feeding is going to be somebody that can help you through. Um, another um, really um Another really important thing is, uh, in terms of the behavioral stuff, is just don't, um, when you find yourself asked, when you're asking yourself, when you're at that crossroads and you're like, is this good or bad? Should I stop this or, or, or continue? It really helps to ask yourself, is the thing I'm doing or about to do with the food going to help my child learn to understand and trust food and eating more? 
Or are they going, is it going to help them understand and trust food less? And if it's less, don't do it. And so most parents have a really, when I ask them that question, they know what the answer is. Mm -hmm. Um, Most parents don't think about the understanding and trust when they're doing it. They're thinking about the outcome. But we know without understanding and trust, kids don't get the outcome that's sustainable and protect their long-term relationship Mm -hmm. with food. Um, another little piece of advice would be don't ever let your child be fed in a room where you're not present. Children should be fed with and by their families. And if you need a therapist to be feeding your child, that can be okay. Just don't be out of the room. Cause that just adds yeah. to anxiety. I mean, we all, you know, kids leaving it's kids leaving their parents is hard and scary. You want to be there. Go ahead. And I would even, um, add to that just the flip side. It feels a little scary, to let go of some of these things. Um, this doesn't mean bad behaviors. This doesn't mean standing on the table. This doesn't mean, and you know, we'll come back and talk about this a little bit more, um, another day, but there is still a time and a place for you to work on mealtime manners and behaviors and those types of things, but not at the cost of trust. Trust comes first. And then the, the other things, yeah. Come later. Yeah. And we're going to do an entire episode on the division of responsibility, which kind of helps people identify how to maintain order at, at the table and kind of people have people stay in their own lanes and parents act like parents and children act like children. Um, but it doesn't compromise trust. And so we've mentioned it several times, but we're going to do an entire episode on that. And then just a quick summary of what instead, we just gave you some things not to do and some questions to ask yourself. But what most children need is they need some level of hunger that's safe, that you can talk to your medical team about what those safety parameters are. They need time at that hungry level because short-term hunger generally isn't enough to motivate a really big increase in eating. They need space and they need to know consistently for a large period of time, several weeks or a couple of months sometimes, that people are going to be respectful of their of their refusals. They need to reestablish trust in the feeding relationship. So a period of time where nobody's pressuring them, tricking them, coercing them to eat can be really helpful in setting things, settling things down. And then what you do is you make food available and you wait. <laughs> and waiting in the context of hunger is what helps um, children learn to eat. And if you are having a hard time and you're stuck, your child's hungry, you've given them space, there's no pressure, the food's available, and there's still nothing happening, that's when it's time to reach out and get some more help. Um, but a lot of people find, like we hear from a lot of parents that I went to wash the dishes and I came back and he was chewing something. And he hasn't put anything in his mouth for six months. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you during our two weaning process in the intensive two weaning program at Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics, that that turning point for kids, that time when they actually start eating, chewing, swallowing is often that it's often when we're having a conversation. So a really recent example, we were talking to Brianna, one of our therapists who was working with a child and she was talking with the mom about some responsive feeding therapy techniques and they heard a noise and they looked over and the child was had gotten into an open bag of snacks and was eating the snacks and he hadn't eaten anything but liquid he had been drinking but he hadn't had anything to eat in a really long time and he finished the bag now it's not always that dramatic but most turning points happen when there isn't direct focus on the child so that's what we mean by time and space and it's hard to wait mm-hmm. but it really is what tends to make what makes the difference so 
You're not doing anything wrong if you're doing nothing. If you need to take a break, it's okay. Ask yourself that question. Is this helping them trust and understand food more? And if it is, keep doing it. And if it's not, stop. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit about, with Brianna, who we were just mentioning, a little bit about what is the time and the place for more structure around feeding. Because there are some kids that just the time and the space isn't enough for. And where is that line? Who needs the structure and visual aids and a schedule and stuff like that? So we'll talk about some of those techniques with when and where those things are appropriate with Brianna next week. And in the meantime, we hope you guys have a great week. Heidi, thanks. This was fun. Right, thank you. Have a great day. We'll be back. See you next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week.